Well, praise the Lord. It's good to see everyone this morning. I just have one other announcement that I failed to make uh, towards the uh, first, and that is uh, we're going to have a new members uh, class coming up the first Sunday in September. So if you are looking at membership or would like to become a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church, if you'd like to come forward for baptism, uh, that's a course that you have to go through. If you just want to find out about the church, if you just want to find more information what we stand, what's unique about Emmanuel Baptist Church, why we call ourselves even a Baptist church and not a Presbyterian church or a congregational church or whatever, uh, this would be an excellent um, uh, course for you to go to through, through to, to understand the distinctiveness of our church, and uh, it does mean you have to join again just because you happen to be in there. But if you'd like to find more information about our church, this would be an excellent time. Uh, we're going to run it for about seven weeks, and uh, I hope it's going to be again profitable for many that happen to be in our church. Now, I do have some handouts, and so uh, I just need to know who happens to be coming out. So if you could tell me, that would be great. I, I, I will, I will um, I promise you that. If you say I'm coming out, I'm not going to say no to you. It's because so often people are afraid of that, that somehow I'm going to say, no, you can't come out. No, no. anyone who wants to come out and, and find out about the church, please, please um, uh, come out. It would be a valuable time. Uh, because I really think, again, when you look at the church, when you look at all the entities that haven't existed on planet Earth uh, today, there's nothing more important here on Earth that's going to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ than, than the church of Jesus Christ. You know, and that's why we're going through the book of Acts, to understand the beginning of the church, to understand, again, the structure of the church, the functionality of the church, what we should be about. You know, and so we see a lot of firsts. We see the history, the early history of this. And we've been looking at chapter 4. And in chapter 4, we see the rise of persecution. This is the first persecution that those who happen to be of the way go through. And we also see how they respond. You know, again, that faithful response to who Jesus is and who other people are. And now this morning, we come to the last paragraph. And the last paragraph basically describes the functionality of the church. And remember this, it's only one paragraph. You know, that's all that happened to begin right here. So it describes the most notable and prominent aspects of that church. And I wonder if, if you think about that, writing just a small paragraph, maybe more, not, not more than 50 words. You know, and you were tasked with the, um, uh, with the opportunity, with the duty of writing about Emmanuel Baptist Church in 50 words or less in, in a paragraph. I wonder, what would you write? What would you say about Emmanuel Baptist Church? You know, what, what, what would you say? Would, would you glow about it? Would you say it's a congregation that loves God and therefore loves its people? You know, would you say it's a congregation that uses their gifts, their talents, their abilities, their assets, their all to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ? I mean, what would you say about the church? You know, even if you said those things, how would you show beyond a shadow of a doubt that that is lived out in the congregation? You know, because it's amazing to look at this, because I, I think a lot of people just don't like this passage of Scripture. You know, and uh, one, one of the reasons, or one of the reasons that's put forward, like people, people don't like this passage of Scripture, is because it, it's describing an early form of communism. You know, it's, a, it's the idea, again, that the state or somebody owns everything, again, and everything that happens to be in, in, in common. You know, and it's very easy to come to that conclusion, but when you look at a passage of Scripture, this is not communism. You know, you have to realize that communism is forced upon people, right? You know, I can't work myself up. I can't own this. I can't own that. And it's forced upon people. When you look at individuals that are described in this final paragraph, like Barnabas, they freely gave, they freely sold what happens to be of theirs for the glory of God and for the benefit of others. 
You know, and, and, so, and so this isn't communism. And also, you have to realize this. In communism, the state owns everything, doesn't it? But we realize that even believers, even though they were selling much that they had, still had, still had ownership of land. In fact, we read back in chapter number 2 and verse number 46, and it says, And day by day, attending the temple together, and then it says they were doing this, and breaking bread, and look at what it says, in their homes, right? They received their food with gladness and, ge- and generous hearts. So here they had their homes. But the amazing thing about this whole paragraph that happens to be again right here is they used everything that they had to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, and like I say, I think a lot of people do not like this passage of Scripture, and they try to explain it away. And one of the reasons why I think they try to explain it away so often is because it is really convicting. You know, and a lot of people will say something like this, well, this is just describing what took place in history. You know, it's neither... Uh, positive or it's neither negative. You know, it's just describing what happened in history. In other words, it's descriptive, but it's not this. Prescriptive. It's not what we ought to be doing. It's just what the early church did. You know, and one of the reasons why I think people come to that conclusion is because this passage is really, really convicting. You know, you think of what happens to be, again, written there, and you think again of our love affair with money, especially in in North America, you know, our third world countries. You know, it, 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 it is incredible. You know, and I think a lot of times we look at the materialism that happens to be out there, but it's really invaded the church. You know, so the way that we think of God being a good God is if he gives. You know, and he gives more and more and more and more. And many times what we're living for are the things that happen to begin around us, the things that happen to begin right here. You know, we want more. And if God gives us more, then he's blessing us. And that's, that's our level. That's how we uh, many times equate God's blessing to happen to be again in our life. You know, and so we're so self-centered when a need comes up that happens to be in a congregation or happens to be again around us. Many times we just shrug our shoulders and unfeeling as they say, we just can't meet it. Well, we self-indulge in ourselves. And while we come out to church many times and we say that this God, this Christ, this salvation is absolutely preeminent in our lives. And the amazing thing about this early church is that they were so Christ-centered. They were focused on Christ. They were focused on the word of God that it really changed them horizontally. It really changed how they related and how they cared for one another. You know, and this is, what, this is what we should all want and we should all be striving for here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. You know, that we would have hearts so overwhelmed with God that it would transcend, right? right there would be a, an effect in our life and how we relate, how we care, how we love, how we sacrifice, you know, one another. And I wonder if you can see that in your life. I wonder if we can see it again at Emmanuel Baptist Church, because I believe the strongest witness in the world, and please get this, is not us individually, is it? It's not just me, the solitary Christian. And that's why we're so self-focused many times. But the strongest witness of the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ is seen in the body. It's seen in the church corporate. And really how they care for one another. That witness goes out. So I really want us to look at this this morning. And I hope it will be challenging, you know, to look at your own life. And even, 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 even the, us as a church here at Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I want to see two points. And the first point is I want us to see what the church was. You know, the prominent aspect of the church. And I want, I want to see how that, that was fleshed out. How it was lived out. 
you know, an example of that in real life. But we see the church, and, uh, and Richard emphasizes, the church had a unity. It had a one heart, a one disposition, a oneness that happens to begin in that. And you can see that in verses 32 and 33 in our passage. He says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. But they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. You know, when you look at it, we live in a world of hostilities, don't we? We live in a world of conflicts. It's everywhere, isn't it? You know, it's nations between nations. It's families between families. It's individuals between individuals. You know, and when you look at it, the battles happen to begin everywhere. You know, and I think a lot of people think that the key to happiness is really having more money. Isn't it true? But if you look at the rich and you look at the poor, there's not that much difference in between them. There really isn't. There's so much drama that happens to be in their life. There's so much conflict that happens to be again in their life. There's so many wars that happen to be going on. You know, and you can see this all the time. You know, and I wonder, again, as we look at our own life, if we can see those kinds of anxieties, those kinds of stresses. You know, because we can see it, I think, in our marriages. We can see it again in our homes. We can see it again as we rear our children. We can see it at the office place. We can see it just about everywhere in our lives. And I wonder, as you look at your life, as you look at the conflicts that happen to begin in your life, as you look at the anxieties that happen to be in your life, when you look at the wars that happen to be in your life, where are they? You know, and, and we realize that. And I think one of the things that the world longs for more than anything, again, is a unity, is a peace. But where do you find in your life that peace? Because can you imagine? I mean, this is a sizable church, and we'll talk about that in a second. This is a sizable church, church. but can you imagine the impact it had on the society that had so much conflict that happened to be again around them when there was a oneness, when there was a peace, when there was a unity that happened to be uh, with, with all of these individuals, what a testimony that would have been. Because look at what it says in verse number 32 again. It says, now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And let's just park on that for a second, because I think a lot of times we read through Scripture too fast, don't we? You know, we many times won't want to see the whole tree, and we forget to look at the individual leaves or the individual branches, and many times we rob ourselves of truly not seeing the significance of that. Because what it talks about, again, is the full number. In other words, the full church that happened to be right there. And this church could have been up to 20,000 individuals in number. I mean, that's extraordinary, isn't it? And it says, again, of all of these individuals, you think of them from all, all various different parts of the empire, coming together, coming on Jerusalem, and here they're living in this one church, and it says they are of one. In other words, there's a unity. There's a oneness that happens to be about, about it. One heart and one soul. And it's talking about something inside of each of the individual that starts to transcend externally, right? Because when we talk about the heart, we're talking about the totality of the inner person, right? We're talking about how they think, how they feel. We're talking about the will. We're talking about the totality of the inner person, the personality. They are of one heart. And it says one soul. And the soul, again, is basically a synonym for this happens to be, again, over here, the heart. But it's more directed. And it's more directed at the mind, what we are thinking. 
In other words, when you look at these individuals, they are on the same page, right? They have the same purpose. They have the same oneness. They have the same direction that happened to be in their life and how to get to that direction. You know, how to do these things. And let me just say this. I think this is extraordinary because there, there's, a, um, there's a oneness also to Scripture. It, 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 isn't there? It, it holds together. And what we have here is, I think, is an answer of the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, in John chapter 17, the greatest prayer ever uttered. In fact, we're still recipients of that prayer today. You know, and in John chapter 17, in verse number 20, it says, uh, Jesus praying to the Father above says, I do not ask for these only, other words, just for the apostles. But he's asking for somebody else. And listen what he says, but also for those who will believe in me through, their, through the apostles' preaching, through the apostles' declaration, through their testimony and witness of Jesus Christ being alive, through their word. And this is what he's praying for, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So, and here's the outcome of that. Here's the external outcome, the external witness. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? So when you look at the oneness of a congregation, here they are of one heart, here they are of one soul, here they are of one direction, here they have one Lord, one intent, truly glorifying him the way he has chosen to be glorified and to be known beyond a shadow of a doubt. What it does is echo forth the great unity in between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we realize they're in one intent, right? They're one in purpose. They're one mind. They're one in heart. If we can even say it like this, they are one sold, right? There's one intent and one purpose. And this is what the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is being. And let me just say this. This is not something that's natural, is it? It is something, again, derived by this great God who happens to be above. In fact, Jesus said many times that, that in fact, he just prayed for that. He said, one of the ways that they will know that you are my disciples is by your love for one another. And then in a prayer that he just makes, he says, one of the reasons why they will know, this is going to be a testimony of our oneness, of the truth of this gospel, the glory of this gospel, is by their unity, is by their oneness. They happen to be again of one another. And let me just say that's not, that's not natural. And I think, again, one of the problems that happen to be again in the world that happens to be around us is people think beyond a shadow of a doubt that peace and unity are easy. You know, we can do it. You know, we just have to put a, our minds to it. We just have to put effort into it. And here's the thing. There's never been an age in human history where there's been peace. Give it that. You know, Never. You know, um, historians will often t uh, uh, tell us that, and they're talking about nations. They're not talking about individuals. That if you look at world history, there's only a handful of years where there wasn't a conflict between nation and nation. Out of all the history that happens to be, again, of humanity. And we're not talking about our relationships. You know, and we're at war, but who are we at war with? We're at war with one another. You know, and people can feel this in this direction. So think about it. Think about it. Here's a congregation. Here's a church that says they represent the Lord Jesus Christ, but there's hostilities. There's wars. There's infighting. There's divisions. And this is what you have to see. And this is why, on a human level, peace, security cannot be achieved. And the reason why is because there's a vertical dimension that happens to begin in there. 
So when you look at a church that's divided, when you look at a church that's not on the same page, when you look at a church, again, where there's divisions, again, and disunity, the reason why that exists is because there's a vertical problem. There's a vertical problem ever before there's a horizontal problem. When you look at a church that's witnessing, that's joyously coming and celebrating everything that Jesus Christ has done, and there's a love for Christ, that love, here it is, that vertical love for Christ, all of a sudden spills over and what? To a horizontal love and a horizontal unity for the people of God, for the people that happen to be again around us. And that witnesses, again, of the love of God in Jesus Christ. You know, and we can see this now. Think about this. How is this achieved? Because it just doesn't happen, right? It doesn't say, okay, let's get serious. Let's get our hearts right. Let's, let's do that. And all of a sudden, we make a decision, and we have unity and peace. I mean, how is it achieved? And he tells us right here in verse number 33, because look at what he says. He says, when with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. And this is, this is amazing because... I'm going to explain it and then show the connection in between the last verse. And when you look at this, we realize that the apostles were the official witnesses of the resurrection. It's not that others did not see the resurrected Christ, but they were the official uh, witnesses. It was upon them that the foundation of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ would be established, right? By their doctrine, by their teaching, through the, through the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, that the foundation of the church would be laid. And this is one of the things I love, because when you look at it, they're giving a witness. They're giving a testimony. And why is that so important? And the reason why it's so important is because Christianity, right? Like when we look at all the various different religions, we look at all the various different things that happen to begin all, all, there, all the different ways of life. Christianity is not a philosophy. It's not. Well, this is just what I believe. This is just what works for me. It's not a philosophy, but it's not something, here it is, it's not something subjective, but it is something that is objective, right? When we look at the Gospels, when we look at the book of Acts, what is it? It's, it's gospel, it's truth, it's good news, but it's history. And when we look at the book of the Acts, it's history. It's based upon the objective fact. The objective fact and You'd have to really, really twist history is Jesus really did come. You know, uh, Jesus really did die. Jesus really did rise from the grave. I mean, the witnesses are just too multitude to deny it. It's dishonest to deny that fact. And what we have is an objective fact. And think of how it changed the disciples. I love this about the disciples. When you look in the Gospels and you look at the book of Acts, you say, where did these guys come from? And when you look at the opening four chapters, every chance they get, they, they announce this, Jesus is alive. Isn't it amazing? Every chance that they get, go through and look at the disciples. You know, when there are other people, they heal this guy. Oh, we, we, we don't have this, but we have something better. And they begin to preach. You know, and you look at it, and why? Because they wanted an announce. I mean, it just came out of the abundance of joy in their heart, and they announced it both to those who happen to be believers and those who happen to be unbelievers. And think of that. Think of that love for Christ. Because although it's an old, old story, for those who know it best, it becomes sweeter as the days go by. Isn't it? Now think about this. Because I asked the question, what creates this unity? What creates this oneness in the people of God? 
You know, and I love this because, because it's followed up, right? This is what the church is, but this is what the church is doing. And it tells us of the apostles were given his testimony, but it also tells us that the apostles were given this testimony. They were preaching, and we see this at the beginning of the verse. Listen to what it says. And with great power. Do you hear that? The apostles were, were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and as they were preaching with great power, it says, and here comes the word again, here it comes, great grace was upon them all. Do you see that? Great power and great grace. Now, where's the great power? And the great power is in the message, so much so that this great grace comes upon them. And and here it is. You know, we looked at this and we've talked about this throughout this book so far, that these spirit-driven individuals were word-saturated. In other words, when we're drinking in the gospel, when we're drinking in what Jesus Christ has done, when we're learning of him, when we're stretching our minds and hearts in these objective truths, what it causes us to do is love Christ more, but what it causes us to do is love others that happen to begin around us. But we call that what? Being controlled, being filled with the Spirit of God. Now think about that. Because if you were to look at an individual in their lives, and you were to look at a congregation you know, whether it be Emmanuel Baptist Church or some other church, and you would ask this question, are they a spirit-filled congregation? Is that, that person a spirit-filled person? Now, here's the question. How could you tell? You know, because here's the thing that, that, that we have to realize. When we look at the works of the flesh, in other words, natural works, the natural relationships that happen to begin out there, and how people treat one another, it's really easy to see the works of the flesh, isn't it? This is not difficult, and beyond a shadow of a doubt, when we see it, we know that this is not the Spirit of God. This is not praising Jesus. This is not glorifying Jesus. And it's amazing because uh, Paul gives this, this list, and sadly, you know, we can see this in many churches, but in Galatians chapter 5, beginning of verse number 19, he says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Now, what do you think evident means? Anyone know? Evident means what? It's very obvious. Very clear to see, right? When I see something evident, I see it. You know, I don't need to talk about it. And he says, the works of the flesh. Otherwise, this is a work, not of the Spirit of God, but of the flesh. And some of these are really easy to see, more easier than others, are very easy, uh, easy, to, easy for us to admit. Uh, look at the uh, first ones coming here, because they're all sexual sins. It says sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, uh, sorcery, those are all sexual sins in the ancient world, even idolatry and sorcery. But listen to what comes next. Enmity, strife, jealousy. How about this one? Fits of anger, rivalries. How about this one? Dissensions, divisions, envy. And then he names to drunkenness and orgies, and he, and he ends the list this way, and, the, and things like these. Otherwise, this is not the end of the list. And then he says this, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And why? Because these are signs that, of the world. This is how the world handles their difficulties, their problems, their anxieties that happen to begin in their life. This is how they interact with one another. 
right? And think of it, because I don't know how many churches you can see that are conflict with one another. They're divided against one another. They can't get along with one another. And when they have these divisions coming out of them, these words coming out of them, they're saying, I'm, I'm just standing for Jesus. I'm just standing for Jesus. And Paul says, it's evident. It's a work of the flesh. Anytime you have these things, you have uh, what is it? Enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, and envy. You know, it's not for Christ. It is a work of the flesh. And think of our conversation. Think of what we talk about other believers. Think of what we talk even about the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Are those the kind of things that are coming out of our mouth? Because the fruit of the Spirit is just as evident, isn't it? When you see somebody with the Spirit of God that truly loves the Lord Jesus Christ, it's evident. And why? And how do I know? How do I know? It's because of what's coming out. Right? Because we see the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, beginning of verse number 22. It says, but the fruit of the Spirit is what? Can you imagine? Maybe 20,000 individuals living this way. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Here's one. Peace. Oh, here's a necessary quality. Patience. Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. Think of how abrasive people are. Self-control. I'm not going to go down there. I'm not going to say that thing. I'm not going to gossip over there. Against such, there is no law. Think of it, because, because it, it's, it, the fruit of the Spirit is not the fruits of the Spirit. It's singular. In other words, if you have one, you have them all. If one is missing, then all of them are missing. Because one blends into another, blends into another, blends into another. And you can imagine the type of testimony in our world that happens to be again around us when you have a congregation that's living like that. Living not according to the, uh, the works of the flesh, but truly living in the fruit of the Spirit, what kind of witness that would be? What kind of testimony would be to the world in which we live? Now, here's the question. What does that look like in flesh and blood? What does it look like, again, to really look out and see that care, see that concern, see that sacrifice, see that love? You know, because we realize beyond a shadow of a doubt, love has feet, doesn't it? It's not just something we see. Well, we see, again, an example of that in uh, the end. uh, uh, Let me see. Let me read the whole passage, beginning at verse number 32. It says, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of these things that belonged to him were his own. But they had everything in common. And then we read about the preaching of the gospel and great power. The apostles were given testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them all. And listen to the outcome. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, here's an example of it, was, who, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. You know, I find, I don't know about you, but I find some things so shocking in Scripture. Are you ever shocked by Scripture? Do you ever look at it and say, did I just read that? 
Have you ever done that? And it really challenges you because I think all of us who happen to be believers in the Lord Jesus Christ would say this, I love Christ. I love God. But it really challenges us. How much do I truly love God? I mean, I, I did that last week when I looked at that passage of Scripture. You know, here's the rise of persecution. And here all these believers come together to pray for this beginning of persecution. And they don't pray for their safety. What do they pray for? Boldness and carrying out the will of God and preaching the gospel. Come what may in their lives. And let, me, and let me say, I have to go back and I have to look at my prayers. What do I pray for? Why am I praying for this? Am I really praying for God's will to be done? God to be glorified. And let me say, I find the same in this passage of Scripture. A number of years ago, David Platt wrote a little book where he really challenged believers to live modestly. In other words, stop building your kingdoms. You know, and live modestly that you might have more. And the whole idea of, of having more is that you might be able to invest in the kingdom of God. You might be able to invest in the activities of your church and missions, you know, and others that happen to be again around us, other ministries that happen to be again around us for the glory of God, that which will last for all of eternity. And here's an amazing thing that happened with that book. book. A lot of people were challenged by it, and a lot of people, again, actually started living more modestly. They actually started downgrading their houses and selling their houses and living modestly that they might give for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ because they realized this was eternal. But let me say, and let me be honest about it, that is, the va- that is a vast minority of believers. When you look at the majority of believers that happen to begin out there, we live for this life. We live for the things that happen to begin here and now. Money has become a central idol that happens to begin in our life and the things that we can have with that money that happens to be around us. And let me just say, it's not just those who happen to begin in the congregation. It's not, again, those who sit in a pew, but all those, also those who happen to begin in a pulpit. You know, when you listen to preacher after preacher after preacher after preacher, and they talk about money, right? And you know, if you've been here a while, I hardly ever talk about money unless it's in the text, right? You know that. You know, but they'll talk about, um, what's it now? It's, it's a seed. You know, plant a seed. Take that money, and if you give it to the church and plant a seed, God is going to bless you. And the blessing is God is going to give you more money. Right? It's like a money tree that will grow up. Right? Oh, God, this is going to be great. You know, or this. You know, I have a special. Here's a preacher, right? He's not one of everyone else, a sinner in need of redemption. But, but I have a special in with God. And if you give me money as an act of faith, I will pray for whatever you want me to pray for. If it's materialism, if it's a relationship, if it's health... You just give that money as an act of faith, and I'll pray for you. Now, let me ask you this question. In all of that, who's central? And the answer is self, not God. And here's the amazing thing that I happened to be again about it, because you can think of these early church, because this is sacrifice. Once you sell something, it's gone, right? Once you sell something, it's gone. You can't get it back. You know, and look at what it says here in verse number 32 again, because I find this so convicting. Look at what it says. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and one soul, and no one, no one said that, they, they, that, that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Now, think about that. 
does the gospel really go that deep? Does it really go that deep? That the things that I have in life are not that important. Oh, you need that cloak? Oh, you need this to have to begin over here? Oh, I can do this? You know, I have this money that I have to begin over here, and I can invest it over here for God's glory and an encouragement again of his saints? Does it really go that deep? You know, because, because we profess this about God, don't we? We profess that God is sovereign. Otherwise, he's over everything, right? He decides when I'm born. He decides when, when I die. He decides that I'm going to be here this morning. He has dictated everything that happened to begin in our lives. And this is what we would say as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We would say, amen. But think about it. If God is that sovereign, then that means he owns all my gifts, all my talents, and here comes the sticky word, and all my assets, everything. They're not my own. I've been bought with a price. And everything that God has given me, here it is, is a stewardship from him to be used ultimately for his glory and the good of his people. That's the heart that created this great witness. And you can see again it in verses 34 and 35 as we go on because it says this, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and, bought them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. You know, think about that. Think about liquidating assets. Maybe not everything, but you liquidated. Again, there was an absolute sacrifice. And why did you do that? And because of this, it's easy. People have need. You know, I care about them. I care about their spiritual welfare. And again, faith has feet. You know, it's so easy to say, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus, I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus, I love Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. But here's the thing you have to realize. Faith has feet. Right? And that's taught throughout the New Testament. You know, in the book of James that... um, uh, Richard mentioned that it's an excellent counseling book. It says, if a brother or a sister is poorly uh, clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and filled without giving them uh, the things needy- needed for the body, what good is that? Now think of what he's saying there. Leave that up just for a second there if you can. Think about what he's saying there. Think about Brother Ernie. I love Brother Ernie. But Brother Ernie comes knocking on your door. Him and Marjorie, and it's 10 o'clock at night, you know, and here it is, a cold winter day, and they say, oh, brother so-and-so, our house just burnt down, and we have no place to go. And you say, oh, Ernie, I'm really sorry. Marjorie, my heart breaks for you. I love you so much. Can I pray for you? May they be warmed and filled. Now, brother Ernie and Marjorie, I have to go to bed. What good is that? And the answer is what? Nothing. You know, um, over in 1 John chapter 3, it says something of the same thing. By this we know love. How do we know love? What's our definition of love? And it's cruciform, isn't it? It's in the shape of a cross. It's in the shape of a sacrifice. It's in the shape of giving up. And by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. 
And then it says, based upon that love, that glorious love, and we ought to lay down our lives and look at who it is for, for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, it closes his heart against him. How does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but indeed in truth. And here's the truth, and here's a question. Has our love for Jesus Christ gone so deep that it's really invaded our pocketbook? So let me just say this. I don't know how much anybody gives. And if you gave nothing next week, or if you gave $100,000, guess what? My pay is still the same. (laughs) I'm not saying this to get rich. You know, I'm saying this because I care about you. And has your love gone so deep that it's affected how you spend? Do you give? Do you give to the church? Do you say, again, what happens on Sunday morning, what happens back there, the lights on, the air conditioning, the missionaries that happen to be supported? Do you think that's important? Well, do you support it? Do you look for opportunities in your life? And I'm not talking about, well, if something comes along, I'll give. No, do you look for opportunities in other people's lives where you can be an encouragement by giving? He gives us an example of this, right? And you say, well, there's probably some other meaning that happens to be of the text. And so he gives us an example of just one individual among many that would have made up this church. And look at what it says right here. That's Joseph. So here's Joseph, and he's given a new name. I love this. Who was also called by the apostles, right? By the twelve, Barnabas. Why? Which means son of encouragement. Who was he? A Levite, a native of Cyprus. Cyprus sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, here's an example of what it looks like personally. And we're introduced to Barnabas, and he's probably Joseph, whose name became Barnabas, because he was such an encouragement. Have you ever known people like that? Have you ever known that you love to be around them because they're so encouraging? You know, all of a sudden, again, when you're around them, you just feel, feel like you love God more. You know, you just feel, again, that you can serve God. You know, their lives epitomize what it means to love God and love other people. And there's such an encouragement in their lives. Now, Barnabas is probably chosen because he goes on the first missionary uh, journey with Paul. And we're going to be introduced to him a little later. But this is one individual. We see he's a native of Cyprus, so he would have came probably during Pentecost and he would have stayed. You know, and he would have been, again, a man of some wealth. And it was from Cyprus. I do think it's interesting because the first place that Paul and Barnabas go is where? On a missionary journey. Somebody sort of said it. Cyprus. Right? right? And here he is. Think about it. So a Levite. Now think about it. Because he sells this land. What's a Levite not allowed to own? <laughs> you know, don't you? He's not allowed to own land. But Judaism had been so corrupted by the time Jesus Christ comes on the scene that they really didn't care. 
And the reason why he sold it is not because he was a Judaic priest. The reason why he sold it is because people in the church had need. Now, I want you to think, because when we get a little later in the book of Acts, Paul is going to be doing something. And he's going to be going around to all the Gentile churches collecting a donation for this. For And this is how it's described, the poor saints that happened to be at Jerusalem. And because of that, because there was a famine, because there was war, because there was persecution and all these other things, there, there was no money that happened to be in Jerusalem. And because of that, a lot of people think that the early Christians here were foolhardy. You know, they shouldn't have been doing this. They should have been looking down the road. They should have been investing. They should have been thinking about this. That would come. That this might come. But you have to realize what these early believers saw. I mean, think about it. On the day of Pentecost, think about what happens. Here it is. Jews from all over the Roman Empire come. And after Pentecost celebration, right, three annual feasts, they come to celebrate, they come to worship God, and then they go home. But here the church starts. Now, think about it. If you go back, out, back to Cyprus, what church is there? And the answer is, there is no church. This is the only place for a church. If you want to be discipled, if you want to glorify God, if you want to learn of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's only with the disciples. That's it. There's no other church. So here's what happens. Uh, Jerusalem is flooded on the day of Pentecost. We read on that first, that first day that the church started, 3,000 souls came to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what they did. They stayed. Now think about it. A lot of them were Galileans. And think of the type of individuals that God calls to salvation. It's not the mighty. It's not the strong. It's not the powerful. And it's most often not the affluent. Is it? You know, we have that again in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1, beginning of verse number 26. It says, for consider your calling. In other words, consider your salvation. Consider who God has called to salvation. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But what has God chosen? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So here you have all of these individuals. And because of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, work would have been sparse if non-existent. And here they are poorly clothed. Here they are again with no food. And what were people doing? They're saying, you know what? I don't need my house. I can rent somewhere. You know what? I don't need that land. You know what? I can sell it. And why? Because there was a need. And think of it. Has your Christianity gone that deep? Has it really gone that deep? Because in verse number 34, it says, There was not a needy person among them. Their faith in Christ had action. It reached where individuals so often find their greatest security, and that is in the things that we have, in the bank accounts. And I wonder if our Christianity has reached so deep that we're willing and able to let go of goods and kindred, you know, for the advance of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, no wonder so many individuals in that first century were convicted of their selfishness and sin. The question is, 
as we look at Emmanuel Baptist Church, as we look at our own lives, as we live for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ, could this be said of us? Could this be said again of our testimony? Acts 4.32, Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And here's the outcome. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. May the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ truly transform us as a congregation. Let's bow our hearts in a moment of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we look at this passage of Scripture, it's just an incredible passage, Lord. Lord, in our day and age of materialism, of easy credit, of easily going in debt, Lord, because we want things of this life. So often the thing that's left out is the very one that we say is preeminent, and that is you. So often the thing that we never invest in is the thing that we say is, is a preeminence, and that is your cause, your glory, the fame of your name, Lord, the proclamation of your name among your people and among the nations. I ask, God, that you would convict our hearts, that we would truly seek to live humble lives, Lord, so that we might be able to invest in your kingdom, your way, and for your glory. We thank you so much. Just be with us, Lord, as we celebrate that great sacrifice right now, Lord, and we ponder the significance, Lord, even of how we should follow that example again of sacrifice. We thank you again in Christ's name. Amen. Brother.